And we are live with our 139th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host, plural, at or Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. <laughs> and Stefan Stefan. It's Stefan Edwards. No, it doesn't. It literally at, doesn't matter how you pronounce that. <laughs> it's Stefan Edwards at Logical on Twitter. Twitter. Seth, say hi, and then I guess Stefan, say hi. How's it going? Hey, everybody. Well, welcome back to another episode. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure today's going to be one of those days, uh, <laughs> just, just based on the pre-show and, you know, needing to take bio breaks. I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, and that's basically what, what goes on whenever – Stefan comes on to the onto the podcast. Uh, we don't have a ton of ama- announcements yet today. Um, yet uh, that was a weird way to say it, but uh, we do still have the Black Hat course that's coming up. Please sign up if you are interested. Ken and I would love to see you, your shining faces, on a virtual terminal somewhere. Um, in-person courses are still in discussion for later this year for Secure Code Review. Um, if you have a conference or, um, yeah, whatever, like some sort of event that you would like to do training at and you would be interested in having us, please let us know because we would be interested. Uh, we're both back on the road and ready to go. So um, other than that, we're super excited to have Stefan on with us. Uh, so Stefan, say hi. Hi. <laughs> That's it. Okay, that was Stefan's turn. All right, so we're done. And yeah, thanks for joining now. Stefan. Stefan. <laughs> if anyone it doesn't know why I'm saying that, it's because I've gone years without ever hearing Stefan pronounce it as Stefan or anyone else that I know pronounce it as that until you started to work at GitHub. And now uh, that's how I learned that your name was pronounced Stefan. So that's the backstory, everyone, on how we now know his true pronunciation of his name. Well- so I, I was actually born with the Hungarian version of this name. So Stefan is actually like... Stefan. Uh, oh, sweet. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> but Your pronunciation is wrong, Ken. Wrong. <laughs> Stefan. I, I, don't, I literally don't care how you pronounce it. That, it's better to just call me logical because everyone can figure out Logi than, uh, than, yeah. than Stefan, apparently. <laughs> okay. Well, that, so. I mean, we, we were discussing just... Just forming the Logi cult, right? That that would yes. that's that's, uh, that's up next, right? But yeah, <laughs> we're gonna go live with the Logi cult. The Logi cult, oh, yeah, I like it. Well, you're on our swag. You've got that's the for those folks who were speakers and got the sweet, sweet uh, special edition hoodie. It's it's your it's your icon, the unicorn on it. Yeah, so, the, uh, yeah, this one representative. This one. Yes, yes, that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I have a close for Zoom meetings and whatnot at work. I just haven't shocked anyone at GitHub yet with it. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Exactly. It's one of those days, definitely. <laughs> it is. It is one of those yeah. days. So I, I know we've got some articles that we want to discuss. Um, like we, we, I mean, I did just want to check in because I know I like. I, I can't remember the last time that you came on, if you had made the switch over to GitHub. Um, yeah. I know you're, you're helping do the red team stuff. Uh, I think we had talked about that on the podcast, but I just, you know, in general wanted to follow up and see how things were going, you know, what, like how, how you've managed that tradition, tra- transition 
and uh, yeah, just in general, what's up? <laughs> well, my boss is a bit of a jerk, but everything yeah. else at GitHub is great. Now, for, for for those who don't know, Ken is actually my boss, so uh, it's 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 yeah, <laughs> it's. <laughs> uh, in in the very very paperwork form of that maybe i mean no. whatever whatever <laughs> uh, yeah. no but it, it's been great very obviously very different transition going from consultancy where you're like constantly on uh with clients and things like that you know there's there's the milieu of of like the general processes and things like that github is very relaxed um one of the one of the things that I, I was brought in to do though was to help start a lot of the processes that we wanted to run with the red team. So you know I've set up a very similar pipeline to what you would see in consulting. It's obviously targeted towards an internal audience. We we you know lay out our, our projects and operations uh, geared more towards what we see as the risk and what we see as the the actual outcome, and then we we sort of socialize those with our internal peers. So. Similar to you know coming up with a statement of work, coming up with with project planning phases, etc. But instead of having to justify you know the the cost to a client or or you know the sort of work that a client wants you to do, and they they look at it and like yeah I want all those things, but I want you to do it in one week. Um, we just do whatever we need to do, and I, I just justify that to my management and then to the the client team's management. So it's it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. You treating folks like, cause you, you know, you use the word client. I think that that's like been one thing that I really, I think has informed your approach quite a bit and like shaped it in a way that um, has a more positive sort of, it's like more, it's just, you have more positive interactions. I feel like because you do treat people like they are clients, like you are consulting for them. Um, since, you know, most, most of our backgrounds mutually amongst the three of us is in consulting. I think it makes sense. And it definitely like you're treating people like customers. That's yeah. instead well, of, you know, adversaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's where we get into trouble, right? Like as an industry as in general is feeling like, okay. I, I mean, I remember my first, you know, real security gig at the bank and the way that that a lot of those security guys walked around was like they owned the place. Right. And you know, that they were the, Hey, we get to tell everybody what to do and how they can, you know, accomplish their jobs. And they were hated for it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> anyway. So yeah. Anytime that you, you walk around with that sort of an attitude, it just doesn't go well. It doesn't end up where you want it to end up. So, well, I, I also think, and this is something I said to to folks when I was interviewing, I think because red team is, is or th there wasn't a red team practice or there wasn't a red team function at GitHub, I think the, the worst way to introduce it is to walk in, you know, uh, own some, some, something, you know, drop a bunch of exploits, open a bunch of issues, you know, finger guns a-blazing is what I say. Um, and then sort of like, all right, I'm good, I'm out. Whereas if you if you approach teams and like, hey, we we are looking at this from a risk perspective. We noticed X, Y, and Z. We we think it's fairly interesting. We'd like to do. Uh, we'd like to work with you. We're not necessarily going to tell you what we're doing right away, but we are going to be doing something. If you notice anything, please hit us up. Um, you know, especially for folks who are newer, right? I I, I think it's a very humble uh, and approachable. Uh, you know type of assessment rather than, you know, full adversarial work. Now, 
obviously at times we do full adversarial work. There are, there are certain things that we just do when we have to. Um, but a, a lot of it is just like more of the risk, more of approaching things from a, from a real world attacker perspective, coming up with cyber physical kill chains or whatever the buzzword is at the moment. <laughs> and, and, and sort of demonstrating actual, uh, you know, attacker positions and risk, assume breach, whatever it is, um, is, is pretty useful, but you can still treat people humbly, even if you are, uh, you know, even if you are an adversary or, or simulating the same, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I mean, we, we got to keep that in mind, right? Like, and I, I mean, where I, I see it happening more, are the people that come up strictly in like the security space, or they've always wanted to be the adversary, right? Like they always wanted to be the guy as opposed to somebody that's come up through development or some of those other channels typically has a hum is more humble about their beginnings and what they're trying to do because they empathize with the other side as opposed to, oh, it's just a bunch of dumb admins that are running that machine. If you've ever built a machine and tried to keep it up to date and, and you know, you have that experience, you realize how difficult it is. Um, and number, you know, number one, it makes you a better tester, right? It makes you a better red teamer if you've got that experience. But number two, it also gives you some empathy on, okay, this is the kind of work that I'm asking these guys to do after I get done. So I'm going to be a little bit more careful and circumspect about how I go about approaching them. A, a friend sent me a very funny uh, image. It was like things that attackers need to get right versus things defenders need to get right. And the attacker was like the exploit and, you know, like uh, maintaining maintaining access, right? Mm -hmm. And then the the defender is like, you know, four hours of meetings and then update policies and explain to Carol and accounting why she can't like, you know, access Facebook or whatever it is. And then like 23 minutes of actual infosec work every single day. And, you know, so it, and the same goes for devs, right? Like it's, it's very easy to be like, haha, I have, you know, whatever you forgot to, you know, uh, authorize people or, uh, you know, anyone internally can access X, um, you know, it's very easy to find those sorts of things when devs are like, I have to deliver this and my job is on the line if I don't do it, you know? Mm -hmm. Not that GitHub is that pressure laden, but still, you know, it's for, just generally, it's very easy to find exploits. It's much harder to make sure they don't exist to begin with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, finding one thing is a lot easier than uh, defending, you know, 10,000, right? And that, that's realistically what it boils down to. And that's why we see all these breaches that are successful as well is... It's hard, right? Um, mm -hmm. Even when you have staff that are working on it full time, they may not be concentrated on the right portion of your network or the right portion of your app. Or, yeah, you, you may not recognize what the real risk is. So, well, do you yeah. all have any thoughts on? I'm well, oh, sorry, I don't mean to stray too too far, but you kind of mentioned early on, just like how folks can go through the process of getting into security just through the means of security and not starting somewhere else, which is like making me think about the, you know, degrees in cybersecurity. I have no experience uh, with the degrees in cybersecurity. Um, <clears throat> literally no knowledge, even what, what that entails. I'm curious if either of you do. And if so, do you have any opinions on, you know, the, the, efficacy of those degrees or uh, just any opinions in general on that? I mean, I mean I've, I've definitely interviewed quite a few folks with, with those, not at GitHub, but, but prior to. And um, I, I think it's, it's 
not a uh, it's not something like you might see with certain certificates, right? Like you, you might see a CISSP and be like, look, they have a great base knowledge of things, but it speaks nothing to their actual technical, uh, technical abilities across the board. Um, but um, I, do, I do think some of those, some of the degree programs that I have seen have focused way too much on one very specific thing. Or if they're like, for example, if they focus on exploits, they, they focus on the exploit development or they focus on crafting exploits, finding exploits, and then remediation is like left as an exercise to the reader. Um, you know, that it really depends on the on the program you go through. Some of them are quite excellent. Some of them, but the 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 delineation I've seen personally is the excellent ones almost train you as if you were a dev or you were doing, you know, infrastructure as code, and then you're exploiting infrastructure as code, or then you're exploiting applications. It's not um, all right, let's find a bunch of exploits. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, you have an A plus let's move on, you know, a lot more training right. off with it. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of my, like, you know, kind of curiosity is that there, there are so many practice areas within, even within just, if you just slice it down to application security, just one of the many parts of security, there is so much that you could get into. I, I question, or I'm curious as to, is it all just surface level on many security topics? Are these degrees somewhat specialized in any specific practice areas like incident response? Like I literally just don't know enough about cybersecurity degrees. And I guess I'm just, if you, if either of you or anyone watching has any, watch the Slack channel, see if anybody has any input. But yeah, I'm curious, like, cause it doesn't it seem like there's just too much to cover in security to like, what would be the basics and the fundamentals that you're, you're learning, I guess, that would be applicable in your job going forward. Uh, I mean, I imagine like, Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say like, I'd, I'd love to see like a discussion of the difference between threat risk and vulnerability uh, you know, all the basics, like how to, how to build an asset catalog, how to <laughs> risk rate, you know, that, that catalog. And then <laughs> typical yeah. like computer science stuff, right? Like, you know, algorithms and data structures, understanding stuff, you know, organizing data, nothing yeah. crazy. Yeah, maybe yeah, that's I, a better question. What would you want to see in that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because that, that, that's what I exactly... I, I mean, that list, Stefan, was exactly kind of what I was thinking through. But... Uh, I would be surprised if most organizations had that direction, right? Like, or if, if universities actually have those discussions, maybe a, on like a master's level, they would start talking about threat risk, at least, you know, based on my experience in academia, it was very much, uh, you know, oh, we're going to talk about security. Let's talk about NMAP, right? Like that was, you know, what, one of the things that we spent like a week on and I'm, I, I, I just remember at the time being like, uh, okay. <laughs> a week on NMAP. <laughs> and then a week on NMAP, right? Yeah. But yeah. I, I mean, it, you know, it all depends on the professors that are putting together those courses and the, the kind of the feedback loop from industry. I mean, they're at a disadvantage because it just isn't fast enough. By the time they design a course, it's already out of date based on what the new exploits or the new approaches are. And then they teach that course for four years. I mean, by the time they update it, it's a decade later, right? I, I you know. Well, I, I, I think part of the problem too is, 
it's it's like the difference between focusing on fundamentals and focusing on the latest thing, right? Yeah. Like, um, you know, if you like, I'm, I'm looking at the books that I have right next to me right now, right? And it's like, if you if you try to like, if you print a book on and you know, pick a programming language, it is likely out of date by the time the book hits shelves, especially nowadays, right? But if you are talking through the fundamentals of like how to design an infosec program or how to how to design data structures and then you just apply that uh, across languages or or you know systems of thinking I, I like that's what we miss a lot in these sorts of things schools very often try to teach the latest thing which they probably shouldn't be doing whereas if you're teaching more of a like these are the fundamentals like don't teach nmap although nmap has been around forever don't teach nmap for a week teach what you know christmas tree scanning is and fin scanning and sin scanning etc and then show how nmap does it and that would be like you could adopt the the two-hour lecture on nmap very easily to whatever tool versus like you know if you try to teach nmap or nse uh and then you know nse is no longer in vogue then you're you're in trouble you know yeah yeah and, uh yeah, I mean, like, honestly, I remember when I was, uh, you know, just learning computer science in general, I was like, um, teaching myself, really, it's like 800 page book on like TCP IP. And I feel like there's probably very little that I remember t- to this day of that book. But at the time, it was super, it was super helpful. I did a lot of networking. And I guess my point with that is that if you invest time to your point in like those very basic you know, understanding of like TCP IP, it doesn't matter which scanning tool you're using. You, I mean, the flags, you can always look up, like, what does this flag do? You can look at the manual, you can use the help. And that's not a big deal, but like the, um, uh, just understanding the fundamental underpinning t- uh, technology, it would be more helpful, I, I feel like. And by the way, Robert responded here. So hi, Robert, didn't realize you're on here. That's awesome. <laughs> Robert works with Stefan. <laughs> like, <I'm> gonna- <laughs> Yep. Robert, it was required to, it was required listening for today. It's required That's listening. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> you must listen to me. <laughs> no, but Robert, Robert said in direct message that like sometimes, uh, you know, some, some of the, the schools that he's seen, uh, it's very, like a very defensive, like this is how you almost apply like disastigs and, and set up a, a windows, uh, environment, which is also needed, you know, but it maybe shouldn't be a, like called cybersecurity per se, just blanket. It should be like, you know, uh, defensive system administration degree or something like that. You know, there's like, uh, back when I was going to school a, be- a bajillion years ago, um, that sort of stuff was like management information systems or computer information yeah. systems. And then computer science was much more like, you know, the theoretical math side, like yep. discrete math and, and uh, calculus and whatnot. Um, and I think... And there's always been this tension where we have like management information systems bleeds into computer science, which bleeds into computer engineering, and no one knows what their degree actually means. It'd be nice if we had some sort of like ontology for these sorts of things that schools had to adhere to, you know? Yeah. They won't, but it'd be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Good good, good luck with that, right? Because we do such a a good job at that on the industry side as well, right? You know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, I don't know, it's very problematic on how we name these things and what we, or even, even just like 
more broadly in InfoSec, like what is a junior versus what is an associate? Like when does someone become a senior versus like, you know, at, at GitHub, we have like senior, then staff, principal, distinguished, et cetera. It goes, goes on quite a bit. Um, but like how far into this do you actually, you know, like what's the pro progression path too? you know, it's, it's not standardized anywhere really. No. And then each organization does it differently. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, Oh, you've got six months. You must be a principal, right? Like that's, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a certain, <laughs> there's a certain <laughs> <old> consultant. <laughs> wait, wait, did I just say that? Sorry. That took a second for me to pick up on. There's a, there's a certain room <laughs> speaking. <laughs> uh, anyways, Alora, as they say. Nice. Cool. But yeah. And, you know, it, it almost leads into the, the thing we were talking about, the, like the, the links that I sent you with, with what we were going to chat about today. Like, you know, when you, when you think about some of the things we were, we were looking at, like format strings vulnerability, right? Like if you're, uh, if you're not familiar with C or you're not familiar with something that uses format strings like Golang uh, or something that's exposed to it, the first time you see that sort of vulnerability, you're not, you're not necessarily going to know what it is. Right. Yeah. And, Ancient vulns appear in, in new landscapes, like C, like old school C vulns appear in IoT, especially lower end IoT, much more frequently than than you would necessarily expect. But you know, like if your degree program or your experience that hasn't hasn't like brought you over all those things, it can be very difficult to to actually know what you're looking at there. You know? Yeah. Well, and I mean this this goes back I, like I think about my like college experience as well and the courses that I still use to this day and I mean a lot of it isn't exactly what you're saying Stefan a lot of it isn't the hey this is how I implemented something in you know C C++ at the time most of it is okay what were the algorithms what were the testing approaches you know what was the overall like theory behind it that can then be applied and and I know at the time because we were going through like huge web, uh, you know, growth and everybody wanted to be a programmer and people were like, ah, you don't need a degree for any of this, right? You just need to go figure out how to do HTML, right? That was, yeah. You need to learn to program HTML. Yeah, that was my favorite. But um, like any of that is no longer in vogue, right? And not used and like most of those developers then moved on after and are back in accounting or wherever they came from. Whereas those that have the theory background are still around, still plugging away because they understand those fundamentals. But yeah. And um, I, I think very frequently too, that's also like on the flip side, that's also used as a, as like a, a gatekeeper. I think we, we treat a lot of algorithms as if they are like these mystical things when in reality, mm -hmm. like, most data structures, like we don't teach necessarily that uh, arrays and lists are both data structures. Everyone, when they think of data structures, they think of some like, I don't know, like like some very difficult, like a, a B star tree or like, you know, yeah. a birch try or something like that. Like people think of complex data structures when in reality, like if you, if you think about like Rob Pike's programming rules, most things are fairly simple. Um, don't go with a complex algorithm or a complex data structure when you you likely have, uh, you know, a very a very simple problem, and then focus on focus on very simple answers to those sorts of things and and optimize later, right? The the book that Ken just posted is is like a, a very old book from uh, Niklas Veth, 
but it's uh, it's it's funny because that sort of thing is very approachable, very simple, but people don't want to use that. They want to use uh, like Corman's intro to algorithms, which is like, you know, a hundred thousand pages thick and, and very dense with math. When in reality, it's like most of these things are fairly simple. We could, we could teach people in a crash course, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I, I'm fairly certain that's the book that I used in computer science. Yeah, I did too. I, I think I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I still have it sitting in, it may not be in my office, but it's downstairs because it was, I, it's so useful to to learn those the basics around it, um, and, and I and I guess I, I didn't think about what you yeah what you're saying there with the with data structures that most people when we use that language actually go to the the complex forms of it as opposed to hey you know I can build a small data dictionary and that's a data structure and then I can use it and manipulate it because it's a useful thing to have as opposed to, Oh crap, I've got to use somebody else's data structure that they've built. It's incredibly complex and has all these you know features built into it or this library that's associated with it. Which the, one's the that? Funny, the funny thing to me is that Corman actually acknowledged that his intro to algorithms book was way too complex. And he wrote a, a much smaller tome. That's like an actual introduction to algorithms called algorithms unlocked. And uh, I actually use that as my sniff test. If someone recommends, like if someone asks for a book on, on algorithms and instead of, oh, did I drop? You're still, you're still there oh, now. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but if, if someone, yeah, if someone asks for a book on algorithms and, and someone else recommends Corman and it's not algorithms unlocked, it's intro to algorithms, I, I really think they're either gatekeeping or they're just like, they're just, um, you know, like not really familiar with with algorithmic topics as they as you might expect because they're they're you know suggesting a book that's like a graduate level uh, like computer science book instead of an intro level one. Yeah, I I I think for folks getting started in infosec, like if you're if you're interested in like bug bounties and you're interested in those sorts of things, like under like having a, a fundamental understanding of risk and having a fundamental understanding of like you know, common misconfigurations that you can, you can script and build upon from there. I think that's huge. That will pay, that will pay, you know, dividends versus like learning the latest framework of something and, and spotting a, a minor vulnerability in that, you know, cause you, you'll spot it. But then when the new framework comes out, you're, you're sort of done. Whereas if you understand risk and you understand edges and you understand, uh, you know, like miscon common misconfigurations just to pick on something that is like more, you know, more in that sphere, you'll, you like, that'll pay way more than, than the, the in-depth knowledge of one specific thing, you know, fundamentals mm -hmm. don't, don't break down like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our secure code methodology, Seth and I, is a, a lot around like <clears throat> repeatable risks and, and places in, in code bases where things go wrong and then showing examples in various frameworks. It's not like necessarily tied to like frameworks. It's, it's the fundamental issues that occur in the various places mm -hmm. that data flows within an application. Yeah, know. absolutely. Understanding how, how data is handled and how, how things are handled uh, is, is much better than, than uh, you know, what a lot of a lot of things are taught now. Folks who come out of boot camps and may be wondering if we're like 
poo-pooing boot camps. Like, no, they're, they're great. Those folks have a ton of contributions and it's great to see people who are like motivated to learn and do so, uh, you know, on their own time. But, um, you know, if, if you're looking for advice, like taking what you learned in boot camp and then trying to apply it more generally and learning, learning some of the fundamentals is, is really great there. It's a, it, that's, that's where I would go next for folks who are looking for that. That's sort of like, what do I do next with my career? You know? So. For sure. Did you uh, did you all want to get into the uh, to the uh, disabled Wi-Fi since we were yeah. talking about string formatting bones and such? I don't know if you, I put the here's the and by the way the reason I pan to you only is if I do this it well not not that not that time but before it completely covered your face so I was trying oh. to zoom in on you um, but yeah this is an interesting no, it, one. It, it just does the same thing when when uh, like something drops and it's storming here. So I didn't know if it was like, oh, I'm I'm suddenly on Streamyard by myself, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> or if I had been selected to to be, uh, you know, to be uh, there. But it's it is fairly interesting uh, to see what what actually happened with with that format strings vulnerability. Yeah. Well, I I mean, did they even call it out as a format string vulnerability? Um, I, it's, I it, they likely explanation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, okay. Yep. It it could be all sorts of things, right? I, if if folks don't remember, like Windows used to have an issue finding and attaching to uh, SSIDs that had emojis in them. Like for a one a long time, Windows couldn't see those sorts of things. So it could be it could be anything. But the fact that. Uh, that the Wi-Fi system gets so so impacted by this is is fairly interesting, especially when it looks like a format string vulnerability. I would love to see if there was more in depth uh, breakdown of of what that was. Like, does it happen with percent s percent s or because percent p is is pointer? Then there's a bunch of string formats, and then you know percent n there, which is off the stack if I recall correctly. But um, you know, it's it was a very interesting. Uh, like a very interesting breakdown of, of what that is or, or actual issue there, you know? Oh, interesting. So the malicious network name being in its memory causes the persistent uh, Wi-Fi uh, being essentially disabled, but not really like it's ineffective, right? You can't use it, but resetting, but yeah, resetting your, your, your network settings will, will get rid of the, well, as long as you don't try to reconnect, get rid of the, uh, the issue so it does show that it's something like a when it's being loaded from memory so basically at load time when when that that data is being passed in like do you think this is a failure of like testing qa testing or it's uh, all a failure of fuzz testing right no yeah it's an edge case for sure um uh but like where it actually manifests feels like it is something that's I mean, it, it's embedded deep in the operating system somewhere, right? Like the fact that you have to join that network the first time. And then once it's in that list against some data structure somewhere and it's trying to enumerate through that and it pulls it up and it's doing some sort of printf, maybe to show it on the screen again, maybe to like, that. that's where you're having the problem. Um, and that's what I would suspect. Uh, but yeah, it's probably just a lack of, hey, we didn't, we didn't even take FuzzDB and run it against a, you know, a bunch of network names known, like 
valid network names that then get stored here and then but pushed back out, right? It's, it's a user input trace at some level is what I'm trying to say. And they're hard to test, right? Edge cases are so difficult to find when you're in the mode of, I need to make sure something is functional. I, I haven't tested this, but if I recall correctly, percent %n actually can form a weird machine. So you can actually have Turing complete printf uh, using oh, percent right. %n there too. There's a, there's a, for, for folks who want to challenge, um, like, you know, try to figure out how, how to create a weird machine or how, how to create an accidentally Turing complete language using printf. Uh, I believe percent %n uh, it obviously depends on the system and depends on whatnot, but I believe it previously used to uh, at least allow it to be Turing complete. So, so, so those of you in the logic cult playing the um, playing the drinking game, right? Turing complete. There you go. You got a square. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we got some good ideas for swag lately. A bingo card for logical. Yeah. That, Seth's not actually drinking coffee right now. <laughs> That's not coffee. Hey, hey, it's still early here. Come on. Come on. <laughs> it's like 10 a.m. somewhere, I guess. Uh... <laughs> but, awesome. But, no, it, it is very, fairly interesting to see uh, what you can get out of the Like, very, very simple vulnerabilities sometimes can get you very far. And, uh, you know, don't limit yourself or don't assume, like, if you're an attacker, don't assume that, Someone has thought of something obvious yeah. there. That's why there's, that's why you you fuzz, and that's why you you try to do things that extend the breadth of what you're testing, right? Because you find things like this. That's also why, if you're a dev listening to this or a defender more generally, you know, property testing is going to extend your unit testing way more than any of the things that you think of, right? So yeah, it's helpful to it's helpful to fuzz native libraries and and just like things that you're including inside of. You know, in this case, I am. I can't even imagine the testing suite for iOS. Like, I yeah, I'm sure it's bananas. But yeah, you would think that there would definitely be. I would think, anyways, and that's what I'm more interested in. Usually, is like the how to prevent things. Uh, and yeah, I would. And see, I don't know. I would think that there would be testing for you know weird SSID names with fuzzing of random data to surface these types of things but yeah i don't you know well and that that that's where it's interesting right because it's only after he's joined it so if it right. shows up in the in the normal list um like the wi-fi scanner that's you know built into settings or whatever it doesn't actually trigger this vulnerability it's only after you've joined it and and that's where i can see it you know okay the edge this case. is edge cases slipped through that they yeah. didn't like put those format strings into a list of known valid Wi-Fi uh, networks and then load it back up in the system to see what happened. Right? Uh, it's they were they were more concerned of okay, what's the what's the attack surface look like? And the the most dangerous is somebody putting that that format streaming string attack just on the on the air as a Wi-Fi name and it being like it triggering a an account take or a system takeover or an exploit in that Wi-Fi stack on the system. Um, but yeah, I, I mean I don't I doubt we'll get much more information from Apple on it outside of a fix. Um, but it yeah. would be interesting to see like what where that fell down if you know if anyone knows someone from Apple that works on the you know works on 
bug validation, bug remediation. It would be an interesting discussion to have. Someone just shout to out to Carl. I don't know how to pronounce Carl Show Show, uh, who and is the person who. Let me put this in uh, comment. Sorry, uh, Stefan. Stefan. I didn't mean to. Uh, Stefan. 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 As we learned yesterday, Stefan also works. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah. like for to fill everyone else, and there's a like I had a client that called me Stefan, and my hearing is atrocious, so I didn't even notice that they were putting an R at the end until like four or five years into into our relationship. And it's uh, too awkward. Yeah, <laughs> and then it was like too awkward to be like, actually, my name ends in an N, <laughs> you know. So I just ran with it, you know, Stefan. I'm Stefan, but soon I'll be Stephanie, um, you know. But the the thing also there is like I I think. And this is something that, that has come up quite a bit with clients and whatnot. Like fuzzing very often is, is said to be like a native activity, but you can do fuzzing in, in almost any context, right? You can have a, a generative fuzzer. You can have a, a grammar-based fuzzer that fuzzes for file formats. And it doesn't actually have to be just for finding edges in native code. You can, you can fuzz for all sorts of stuff. Um, Property testing is, is, is like it straddles the line between unit testing and fuzzing itself. It, you give it some invariant that you want to hold, right? Like, I don't know, that the, the string doesn't, con like the, the program doesn't crash when I give it a format string. Obvi this is a very obvious one, but, you know, that, that's one invariant. And then the, the program will, like the, the property tester will actually go through and try to find some input that invalidates the invariant that you have there. So eventually it will stumble upon, oh, if I put percent %n or percent %p in here, it suddenly breaks. But if I do any other string in the universe of strings that I can generate, uh, this thing doesn't crash. So I, I, there's like fuzzing is, is good for just general program analysis. You just need to, need to know, what you're, you know what you're testing and, and, and debugging there, you know? Got to know the reason why. Yeah. yeah. And what you're going after. That makes sense. Well, and it, it helps you when you're when you're looking at something and you you don't necessarily have the ability to reason about all of the edge cases that go through your program, right? Like think about how large our programs ha are nowadays. And if you haven't if you haven't like uh, stubbed out your programs such that it's very easy to test each individual function's input and output and understand the contract of data flow in between, um, you know, fuzzing and property testing can be much easier to to find edge cases won't find all of them obviously but it, it'll help find edge cases versus you know like just what you what tests you can randomly think about there yourself yeah, yeah um, i actually think this is this this is a good segue into the to the next uh local privilege escalation since that has to happen in a specific way like it has to happen during asynchronous execution let me post this actually I don't know if you all want to go into this now, but uh, again, this is covering your face. Stay far. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stand on my tippy toes to be above the banner there. But no, I'm going to keep getting morphed into something that doesn't even resemble your original name. Yeah, seriously. I, yeah. I mean, honestly, you can just call me Scott or something. Seth. <laughs> Seth, two. Seth two. Yeah. Seth two. Yeah. <laughs> But that one, that one's fairly interesting. I haven't dug all the way through, but uh, reference, like reference counting bugs are always fun. Um, 
for, for folks who don't know, reference counting is an alternative to garbage collection. Basically, each allocation in memory has a reference count. Basically, the number of times a program or system has referenced this object in memory. Uh, and then you can, uh, like each time you free the reference, you actually just decrement that counter until the, the counter is less than or equal to zero. And then you can actually free it from the bag. Now, if you instantly realize that circular references would be a problem because there would always be a one in there. That's correct. Uh, so reference counting schemes always have some sort of edge cases and then those edge cases lead to other edge cases and, and so on and so forth. But reference counting is, is always a fascinating area to see uh, because it provides a lot of the benefits of garbage collection, but uh, without some of the downsides of garbage collection itself. So, and then things like Objective-C um, have what's now called automatic reference counting. Uh, affine type systems, like what you see in Rust, affine, I guess, is one of those, one of those words that you get a, a, a square on your logical space if, you, if you're hearing this. Um, but like linear type systems, affine type systems, they, they also can, can use reference counting or something similar to it. Uh, so, but the, the Linux kernel also makes reference to it or, or makes use of it in order to help manage memory in there. So I guess that's the, the long-winded intro to what this is. And it looks like the, the bug, the precondition is, is uh, fairly interesting because uh, it actually leads to privilege escalation to root. So, Yeah, I'm still unpacking the article as I read through this. It's pretty interesting. Oh, it's like it's a not, it's a not trivial. This is definitely not a trivial sort of. It, this is a very detailed explanation uh, of the actual issue. Um, but it's very lengthy, and so I'm still unpacking as we. Well, there's a up. lot of C code to to grok in there too, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and and again here, this is like if I was to plug anything, like property testing would be one of the things that I would look at here, like setting up your invariants and trying to understand what your system is attempting to do. So, uh, Uring is like an alternative to, or not an alternative to, but one of the, one of the modes by which you can sort of set up. Uh, polling-like interfaces. I haven't used it directly myself, but it it basically allows you to set up uh, like you know like a, a like a queue system for things to to run, um, which is not uh, like it's a little obviously coarse grained, but you can think of it as like an asynchronous framework for for Linux kernel. And with any new interface, it, there's obviously lots of interesting problems that you're going to run into, and this was just one of them. And the, the attack is, is fairly fascinating. Uh, but more generally, like even, even here at, at GitHub, one of, the, one of the Sec Labs folks just released a, a blog post on, uh, on a bug in, uh, in policy kit, in poll kit, that basically if you, you write to a dbus buffer and uh, if you kill the connection before, before it happens under certain conditions, one of the paths that the program execution could take would lead to privilege escalation. You could you could become root, <laughs> and it was like a super simple thing. I just like make sure I kill at every time right here, and uh, and you know it it actually led to led to uh, like you know privilege escalation similar to this. Just you have to understand the invariance and you have to understand the data flow and path of your program. But the way we write programs impacts how we can actually understand things, which yeah. is wild, you know. I found well, there's the. Yeah. link here to yeah post. there's th th there's so many dependencies that are built into these right uh, and yeah I, 
I mean, it's so difficult as a programmer to, again, this goes back to, you know, I've got to think about all these things when I'm designing a program or I'm building out a new feature and I'm dependent on these 100 different packages that I have no control over what they do, or I've got like a low level kernel call that's in there and I'm never going to go in and, you know, figure out what's actually going on. I'm just going to call that function because this is the way I think I should do it. Or I saw on Stack Overflow and the attacker only has to find one little problem with it. And all of a sudden they can start to build out this, you know, cyber kill chain again. Right. And th- right. this, this is a good example of that, right. Is finding that one counter issue and then extending that to the point that they actually get root access. Well, and, and as we, as we make kernels more complex and as we make our systems more complex, we, we, either need to design them such that there are no obvious bugs, right? Or, uh, you know, that there are obviously no bugs. And and the obviously no bugs thing is is difficult without formally verified code that you have an entire chain through. So unless you're like using Alloy or uh, like TLA plus and then using CompCert for your C compiler and yeah. SEL4 as your, <laughs> as your operating system, you're probably not in that, that state. But for the rest of us, like you, there are very simple or simpler proofs that we can do such that there are no obvious bugs in, in our code. You know? Yeah. Yep. Well, but I, I mean, it, I, it's as simple as looking at those dependencies, the frameworks that you're pulling in as well and seeing whether or not the developers or the providers of those, those code of that code is doing some sort of property testing or at least unit testing or something outside of just a functional test to make sure that it, it, it does what they want it to do. Um, but I would be surprised if many of those packages go to that length. Right. Um, I just, yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important bit to touch on is especially if you're like doing like pull request reviews and things like that, you should absolutely be looking at the tests. Um, for one, to understand how the code works and what the intention was, but for two, for two, to make sure that the right test cases are covered because sometimes you'll even see security tests in there and then like, but they're they're not really, it's sort of like, I don't know, like let's say there's four roles. It would be like a test for one of them. Like, hey, you know, can can some anonymous person be able to access this endpoint? Or can I do some you know, basic workarounds, uh, you know, or bypasses of authorization. Um, but you don't see like, oftentimes I don't see like super comprehensive focus on those tests. And also I mean that from a security perspective, like people building, um, which is something I think you tried Seth at one point with sputter was to make a framework that was specific for security unit testing that people could build upon and like yeah. build it and, kind of like a, a modular framework for adding, yeah, for adding specific unit tests, uh, uh, security specific unit tests, I mean. Yeah, I, I mean, it, that was very specific to like web apps, right? And you know, right. like th- th- there's still some usability there and like defining what it is, but it, it goes back to, um, you know, building out those requirements and specifications and knowing what it is, the data flow and what it should look like. Developers, at some level understand that because they're building the applications, but it's always just within the context of what they've developed. Um, like I, I look at the software supply chain and I feel like, I feel like we're never going to really get there um, as far as, you know, 
a wholly integrated testing framework or the ability to test out an application and prove that it does only what you intended it to do. Um, well, yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. Hillel Wayne, if you're not familiar, he, he, he um, blogs about and tweets about correctness quite a bit. He, he works in Alloy. He works in TLA plus he works in, in Agda and cock and a few other things. Um, but what's funny is he very often tweets things, um, and I talked about this like at Midsummer's Night Con. Um, you know, the, the, the simplest formal method or the simplest thing that you can do to prove that your software is correct, you know, you know modulo some level of effort is just a decision table. Like if we have this input or this class of inputs or inputs under this value, we do X. And then you can literally just make sure that you roughly are approximately doing X and we, we don't even do those sorts of things. It's just like we we sort of like, hey, I need something to do X, Y, and Z. And you, you run out and you code X, Y, and Z. And then you're like, oh, but wait a minute. We actually need to approach, you know, A, B, and C. And it's like, ah, I'll just add those. And now suddenly you have a program that's like way complicated when you in reality, you could have just had a decision table that added those things. Yeah. You, you know? could, but doesn't that interfere? Like, I guess it it would depend on what you're building. Like if it's just a simple feature, you know, do you think with, well, I'm not going to even ask because I'm, I'm oh, sure really? from a security bend, people on this call are going to say, absolutely do that. But I think to keep up with like development velocity and the pace, sometimes that's asking quite a bit of developers who have to think through many other, you know, like there's, I, uh, I, like, I mean, do we, we need- yeah, we, we you say that though, Ken. What 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 have we started to do? What have we started to push on developers? Threat modeling, right? Yeah, that's true for sure. I mean, threat so, modeling so, is something. Yeah, and, and, but and, but that is usually the intention of that is for something that's not just a simple feature, right? That's for like a bigger service. So what I'm saying is, or what I'm asking, I guess, is does it is it are we talking about making like a decision tree for a larger service are we talking about even for incremental features um like what is the what is the like balance there is what i'm trying to figure out i i i think honestly like designed by contract right like these are this is what my function expects in this is what my function function returns uh can save you a whole world of hurt in a lot of these sorts of things because you can build up on it and it's very easy to like in the moment, this is what I was, even if you're just saying, hey, this is what I expect. I'm not even enforcing this, but this is what I expect. And then later you read, like six months later, you come back to it and you have to, you know, have expectation plus one. At least you're like, oh, wait a minute. I was expecting this, but I'm not considering this edge case given new information would be a world of help for, for developers and planners and attackers and everyone, you know? So- I have seen, and I want to just like say this though, I have actually seen even for a smaller feature within a subset of a larger, the scope of like a larger service, a decision tree uh, yep. made without even security asking for it. Like this is our, you know, but again, I think sometimes there's a bit of a fantasy land that we get to live in uh, as, you know, and maybe not all development shops are not a fantasy land, but you know, like there's definitely some level of focus on the quality of what's being produced versus I know that's not the case everywhere. It's clear to me, having been in software security for this length of time, that that's not always the case. And, you know, it's it's striking a balance that I think is the question. It's like, you know, is that... Now, like, I guess you could say de- 
the, the tests themselves, like writing unit tests, are sort of a way of answering that maybe? Would you say that or would you say, no, that's not how you would answer those questions? Like around like, what is it, you know, what's its intention? What's the decision tree here? I, I think unit tests are you testing what you expect the system to do and it can test all, like I have a I have a graph of like testing methodologies that I, I use in a bunch of different talks. I'll, I'll find it after I'm done blathering. But there's there's a like unit tests are testing things that you expect, but you're not necessarily testing like the outline of the program. You're testing like maybe your program slopes this way, but you're testing some like little feature in the middle here that has nothing to do with your with the overall data flow of your program. Uh, Unit tests are things that you expect, whereas, you know, property tests or, or fuzzing more generally or symbolic execution or abstract interpretation, they're not obviously mapping one-to-one -one with the, the outline of your expected program. That, that's truly formal methods to do that. But it, if, you're, if you're trying to expand what you think the shape of your program is and what you think the possible inputs are, that's where you, you would do other things. And decision trees are just one method of, of handling that. I think that we're going to be handling these sorts of things. And when we have these sorts of things, we do those sorts of things. And, and that's it. It's, it's, you know, you can only handle the, the unit that you, you work at. I wouldn't expect developers working on left pad to try to figure out how, you know, authentication in a major business application should work just because left pad is used by that. You know what I mean? But if left pad says, Hey, we expect, you know, uh, the integer to be positive here and you've passed in a negative, um, the developer can then at least code around those sorts of things or always send the, the you know, ABS of the, the absolute value of the, of the integer that they pass in, something like that, you know? That's a fair answer. And I'm going to do something super unfair, guys. I have to jet. <laughs> I've got another <laughs> meeting that I got to run to. So I'm going to hop off and leave it to y'all. Um, yeah, I, I assume can, you've got. We can, yeah, we can wrap it up. It's fine. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll. Uh, thank you, thank you. Sorry, I have to go. I'm, okay. I'm a dirtbag. <laughs> bye, right. bye to Ken. <laughs> bye. We'll talk bad about you. Yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, we'll 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 just you know we'll chat about about the whole thing. But I do I do think like all of this belies that we probably need to just like actually focus on what we expect from programs and, and yeah. where where those expectations go. You know. Well, and that, I I mean I. I I'm with you. That's where I dig the decision trees because it does define acceptable versus unacceptable and forces the programmers or at least to think about what happens when that unacceptable comes in. Um, in unit tests, what I, what I typically see in a unit test is, is exactly what you're saying. I expect the application to take this input and have this, this output but it doesn't do any of the unexpected that you get out of the property testing or the fuzz testing, you know, the other things that, it, that are included in there. So yeah, I, I don't know. I like, like, I just don't, again, I, I I've become very much a nihilist as the, as, as far as these, you know, the testing is concerned. Cause I just, I don't see it. Right. Like I see so much code and, I, I don't even see unit tests on most things. So I I pasted the the image that I was talking about in, into our chat, um, but uh, there's like program domains like that. Uh, unit testing very often can just be testing a very a very small overall domain 
uh, for what you're what you're actually expecting. I guess I could share screen here too, but yeah. you know we you, you want something that holistically tests the entire uh, you know like holistically tests the entire thing, not uh, you know not tests what you exactly expect there, you know and that that's where program analysis and that's where other other techniques or where even a very simple decision tree can help define the outline of what your program is expecting to do, which is difficult when you want to balance developer velocity. But I think very often we we think much more about shipping features than securing features, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it is where we run into problems for sure. Um, I, you know, anyone that's interested that though should look at that program domain, that, that image, because it's, I mean, it's exact. It's it's the same thing that we talked about in my, you know, software testing course in college twenty five years ago, right? Like, was how do you, you know, how do you define what a program is, you know, abstractly? You know, here this is this is what it does, and where do those edges sit, and how do you figure out what those edges are, and then test them? Um, it, it's not a trivial task in most cases. So you have to use things like the decision tree to point you in the right direction. Um, yeah. Or, I, or it, yeah. an ADR or anything like any reasoning about why you did X would be helpful. <laughs> yes. Well, and that, you know, it goes to the contract and even, I mean, even like just a comment about what's expected and what, you know, what the output should be. Um, I, I, you know, I've been looking at, you know, this, you know, crazy ass source code that, you know, came out recently. And like, there's no, there's no contracts involved. There's no, you know, you start looking at some of the C code that's generated nowadays across the, across the industries. And even things as simple as like variable names that would tell you that give some indication of what, what the purpose behind an application is or function names. They, they, developers just don't have a tendency to do that because they are so focused on the velocity side of things. So asking for even a brief description of what's being done within a function um, seems to be asking a lot. This is where I I, I get to the whole nihilism portion is because I just don't see it happening. Certain organizations, yes, definitely it does. Certain projects, certain certain open source projects, certain, certain scrutinized code, but in general, that that's being developed or slung for corporations, I, I don't see it as often. Well, it, it really depends on if your team has the time and the the budget and the the yeah. culture to actually do those sorts of things. It's the, it's the same with security more generally, right? Like, does your organization pay for security or does it just like, yeah, we'll deal with that later. So, you know, which, yeah. which organization is going to be hacked faster? Like one that that you know doesn't care about it at all certainly you can have the best formally verified code and if you didn't consider a security implication it's going to have a problem um, but you know at least you documented your your ideas you have you have code there and now you can expand your proofs and expand your domain there a little bit so yeah yep well i don't think we're going to put a bow on it today or, or i mean we're not going to solve it for by any by any stretch um I don't know. We, we, we spun out a bunch of resources, though. If you have questions like about the discussion that we're having here, feel free to reach out. Uh, 
either to Stefan or me on Twitter and we can, we can definitely, or Twitter or on the Slack channels, we're both on absolute absolute Slack and we can point you in the right direction. This is all approachable by any developer, right? It doesn't matter if you got a degree from one of the, you know, you know, the, the whatever organizations, right? Like, um, you know, you're doing it on, yeah, online somewhere, you're stepping through one of those courses. There are resources that are out there and available to you to start with this sort of testing, uh, even learn what unit testing is and then expand out from there to property testing and the other things. Like it, it's not a difficult task. It just takes time is realistically what it boils down to. I, I just posted one more image. I think this is my favorite. It's from like 1958 or something. It's UNIVAC and they're it's from one of their programming manuals. And they're like, programmers must make an effort to actually understand the problem before committing the lines of code. Otherwise, you'll code yourself into a corner. And it's funny because that that comment is, you know, <laughs> decades and decades old. And yet it's still pertinent today to actually follow follow the advice from that paragraph there because we we just like you know, just that first line, right? Just that it must be clearly defined. Right, right. And we, we don't do that enough, not as, as organizations, as developers, um, as, as security people. Like our remediations may not even consider all the implications of what we're, we're pushing back, you know? So, no, yeah, they definitely don't. So, well, good. I, you know, I know I've been going for an hour, so it will, we'll go ahead and, and call it for today. But um, Stefan, as always, appreciate the time, appreciate the discussion. Uh, we we kind of always go in different directions than I yeah. think we expect, but that is that's why we love having you on. So um, if you have questions, like I said, hit us up on Twitter, join Slack, and we'll continue the conversation there. But thanks, everybody, for joining today. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Stefan. We'll talk soon. Bye.